Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Today's discussion will focus on management of patients who have received a fetal anomaly diagnosis. Speaking of our guest, let me introduce Dr. Janet Tucker. Welcome to our show today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are so happy to have you. For those who do not know Dr. Tucker, Dr. Janet Tucker is an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, College of Nursing in Memphis, Tennessee. Her clinical expertise is in high-risk obstetrical nursing, and she teaches maternal child nursing in the baccalaureate nursing program. She was the program director at La Bonner Children's Hospital Fetal Center for eight years, where expected women with a fetal anomaly diagnosis met with obstetric and pediatric specialists as care is planned for pregnancy, delivery, and the neonatal period. She has worked in several labor and delivery units in Memphis, as well as outpatient obstetrical settings, and was a childbirth educator for 10 years. Her research of the experience of women with a fetal anomaly diagnosis and the impact on pregnancy, as well as the postpartum and neonatal period, has been presented nationally at multiple conferences, as well as published. She's the co-chair of A1's National Research Advisory Panel and has served on the Tennessee Birth Defects Advisory Committee since 2018. While having been in a full-time academic role since 2017, her favorite part of teaching is sharing her love for maternal child health care in the clinical set. Again, welcome, Dr. Tucker. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. I mean, just reading all of your accolades, I know you're very busy, so we do appreciate you taking out the time with TIPQC to just share some of your expertise and knowledge for the healthcare providers across the state. Thank you. I'm happy to share what I've learned from our moms who have a high-risk pregnancy. As you know, our, our patients teach us, and I have learned a lot from them about their experience. Very true. Well, I know I just gave a laundry list of accomplishments that I am in awe of about you, but can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself? Well, I've always loved high-risk obstetrical nursing, whether inpatient or outpatient. And my heart has always gone out to women who may have anticipated an uncomplicated pregnancy, but then because of a medical issue with their health or the health of their unborn baby, they're facing a high-risk situation. So it's gone from a healthy part of life to something that's being managed medically. And as a nurse, I've always enjoyed the challenge of providing the best care when we must consider that we're always caring for two patients. Very true. I think a lot of times, if you're not very close to the high-risk pregnancy world, we tend to forget about the unit. And most times when the anomaly comes up, we're focused more on the fetus and may forget to bring mom feelings, experiences into the conversation 
as well as sometimes we'll focus on mom and forget we have to prepare for this fetus that's growing this baby in the womb. So we all do appreciate your work. So moving on, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Tennessee Birth Defects Registry Advisory Committee that you sit on. What's that work like? Can you describe that for us? Well, it's interesting that not every state has the same type of of registry. When you go on the March of Dimes website, many of us know that they have an awesome peristats section. But there's a map of the United States which shows just a lot of variation in what states report. So in Tennessee, we do have a data surveillance system, so we're able to track different specific fetal anomalies. And even within congenital heart defects, which is a large percentage, they're further broken down into hypoplastic left heart, single ventricle, ASD, those types. And then the birth defects committee is made up of clinicians across the state. So usually each year there's a different focus on different diseases and the follow-up. So it's really been a privilege to be a part and hear what's going on across the state as we look at our numbers and look at what's being done in the in the state of Tennessee. So I've really enjoyed being a part of that and, and hearing what's, because sometimes we can be really focused on just our area. So it's nice to hear what's going on in rural as well as urban areas. That sounds like great work. And this anomaly committee, are you looking at all types of anomalies, just major, minor, certain body part anomalies? Really, all of them are are grouped. And it's interesting that as clinicians, we can say major or minor. But one of the things that women have taught me is that when it's your baby, none of it's minor. Um, And we have to always, always remember that, that it can be something. A diagnosis that doesn't even require any surgery may require very little follow-up all the way to an anomaly that anomaly that will be life-changing for that family and will need lifelong follow-up. Very true. And I know sometimes we as the clinicians forget to, again, bring in the patient experience when they're going through these types of situations. The work that the committee does, is that available for the public or is it something provided to the different areas in the state or hospital systems? It is. It's it's published yearly. So it's a great way for any clinician interested can go read the annual report. And it's it's very lengthy and very detailed and very interesting to, as I said, to see what's being done across the state with different um, birth defects. Does the committee provide recommendations as it relates to congenital anomalies? Oh, absolutely. It might be related to education. It might be related to categories, understanding the best way to report. And that's that's one of the issues is the reporting, because as you well know, clinicians are so busy. So it has to be a system that any clinician can go into and easily report and document that so that we are able to capture that data. So it's important that we have the providers on the committee so that they can really share what's going to work within that data surveillance system for them. Does the state provide a system to report anomalies or is it just the hospital reporting from their system? Primarily the hospital, but the providers also are involved. So there is a system that they can go in and report. Okay. 
great. I, I honestly did not know. I know about the birth certificate, the death certificate reporting system, but to know that the state has a uniform way to allow everyone to collect and report the data is a great way to keep accurate about what's right. going on and then definitely would help your committee to be able to provide relevant and accurate recommendations based on what you're seeing in the state. Right. So for myself, other healthcare providers and clinicians, what advice would you give to them regarding encounters with patients who have been recently diagnosed with a congenital anomaly of the fetus? Research has shown there are some unique concepts to this experience that are different from women who have an uncomplicated pregnancy. So I think really at the very onset is just understanding how different the pregnancy is when there's a fetal anomaly diagnosis. Some of these would would make sense. There's multiple losses and grief as they go through hearing that there may be a concern for their baby. Fragmented healthcare because they are see they may see their primary obstetrical provider, but also see high risk maternal fetal medicine specialists, and then they may be introduced to pediatric specialists during the pregnancy. They may go from anticipating that they were going to deliver in their hometown to the necessity of live, delivering in a larger hospital because of the expertise needed to care for their baby. Increased information needs, of course, as they as this pregnancy is different and learning about the prognosis for their baby. Of course, anxiety and stress, isolation, because they may know they're in their childbearing years, may know a lot of women who have who are having babies, but they may be the only one with a fetal anomaly diagnosis in their circle of friends. Uncertainty. As much as we know about fetal diagnosis in 2022, there's still a lot that's unknown. So there's the uncertainty of, well, this is what we know now, but we'll know more when the baby's here. And so that also explains the different periods of waiting. They wait for test results. They wait to meet the next specialist. They wait for that next ultrasound. And then when the baby's here, they're waiting for more tests. They're waiting to see, well, when is the surgery going to happen? When is my baby going to come home from the NICU? Decision-making dilemmas. As you well know, fetal surgery has given us options now for some diagnoses such as spina bifida. So families are are faced with that hard decision. Do we take the risk for fetal surgery or are we going to wait until after delivery? Or even an amniocentesis, do I want to get that definitive answer of the diagnosis or do I want to wait till genetic testing after delivery? And then the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of what is going on with their baby so that they can be prepared is a double-edged sword. They are grateful for the knowledge, but at the same time, it robs them of some of the joys of pregnancy. And then, of course, the adaptation. So I think that's the, the first place to start with understanding how to care for women with a fetal anomaly diagnosis. And I, I think the next thing, and you and I have had conversations about this before, delivering that hard news. As we know, when vulnerable moments like that happen in our lives, when we hear bad news, we often remember the, so many details about it for many, many years. And I know when I've shared that with, with obstetrical residents, that can be a little bit concerning, realizing that their words are so powerful. But really, patients know when you care and when you're delivering it with compassion. And it, it's not so much that it's a magical way to say it, but that you're delivering it with compassion. And, and that's what they really appreciate. 
some of the things we've learned from families is to try not to use ambiguous or medical words. For example, lethal may not sound like really a medical word, but sometimes people don't really understand. And so it's, it's better to be more direct and say, we don't anticipate that your baby will be able to survive very long after delivery, as opposed to saying your baby has a lethal diagnosis. But also understanding, as, as you well know, Dr. Tate, that when patients and families are hit with that news, stress and anxiety prevents us from remembering everything. So that's why the news and the details have to be repeated at subsequent visits. And also just verifying that they understand. I think we've all had this experience as clinicians where a patient and their family is nodding and saying that, yes, they understand, but then you find out later that they really didn't understand. So sometimes we we have to really stop and verify that they are understanding. One of the things that I did at the fetal center on their very first visit was to ask the mom in her words, tell me, tell me why you're here today. What's going on with your baby? And that really helped me know how much they had read. You know, sometimes I would hear a comment, well, they think something's wrong with the heart, but they're, you know, that's really all I know. And, you know, the diagnosis that I have on the chart is potential hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Or I've had a patient one time say to me, well, my baby has gastroschisis and I've researched and I know as much as you do about it. And I had to laugh, but that just showed me her information preference style that she had Googled and read as much as she could before she got to us. So, so that helps. And then also asking her how she likes to read, receive information. As you know, some patients really like pictures. They are, they like to go on the internet. Some people want to hear it from the physician. And this was um, something that I really learned from the research that really helped me was that patients have different information seeking styles. styles. The information seeker is like the patient who shared that, you know, she had Googled everything. But then there are information avoiders. And what I think is so interesting about that is an information avoider is not in denial, but they are selective about who they are are hearing their information from. For example, I remember a mom who she was master's prepared educator, but was more that information avoider because she said she didn't want to Google and she took her information from her obstetrical provider and from the maternal fetal medicine specialist. And she wasn't listening to anything else. That's, that's where her sources. So neither approach is wrong, but I think sometimes we, we see that, for example, in someone who, may want to have an amniocentesis because they want to know as much as possible during pregnancy versus the mom who, well, I'll wait till after birth to find that information out. I had um, one mother who the suspected diagnosis was trisomy 21. And the Down Syndrome Association of Memphis is really wonderful about providing maternal fetal medicine offices with a book, a packet, a bag, all information about the Down Syndrome Association of Memphis. And so before I really understood this theory and I was taking care of this patient, I just handed her this bag of information at the end of her visit without asking her if she wanted the information. And the next month when she came back, she said, you know, Janet, you remember that book you gave me last month? And I'm like, yes, you know, and she said, well, I threw it away as soon as I left the office. And I was like, okay. And she said, 
may I have another copy? And that was such a good lesson to me about asking first, what do they want to know? But also understanding that they may not be ready at one point, but a month later, they may be ready. So allowing that information avoider the opportunity to opt back in. I would see it also, for example, with a mother whose baby had gastroschisis. And as you know, the silo procedure is a, a very common way for the intestines to go back into the, the, feed, the newborn's abdomen. So sometimes when I would say, well, do you want to see pictures? They may not at that point, but I would find later in the pregnancy, they would say, I'm ready to see those pictures. I'd like to see that procedure. So I think one thing the patients taught me too was, what can I answer for you today? What is the burning question? Because as you well know, that changes throughout pregnancy as they assimilate this information and they process it and then new questions arise. Some other more practical things is the timely referral to maternal fetal medicine specialists or pediatric specialists to reduce the time that she has to wait on more information and reduce her anxiety. For example, let's say an obstetrician in the community would have called the fetal center and let's say the, the, the suspected diagnosis is cleft lip. Well, I know that there's not, at this point in time, there was not going to be anything done in utero to change that anomaly. But of course, we would connect them with different experts. But, you know, if that mom really wanted to get in in the next week and really was very anxious, then that was the priority. Even though I knew that a week or two was not going to really change her care, I didn't want her waiting longer if there was an opportunity to get her in earlier. Also, when And of course, I know you see this on a weekly basis. Tests are being ordered for patients and we let them know we should have this back in a week or two weeks, that kind of thing. But really being proactive and following up on that. For um, example, if I would tell a patient I should know by Friday, well, let's say it's Friday at four o'clock. I still don't have the results. I would make a point to call that patient and say, I just checked with the lab. They're expecting to have the results first thing Monday morning so that that patient is not going over that weekend wondering and worrying. I mean, it's a little thing, but it it makes a big difference to them. Another thing that we need to be aware of is anybody with a smartphone has got the ability to Google. And so patients are going to Google and look up diagnoses. And we want them to have reputable resources and websites. So being able to refer them to the reputable ones, the ones that will give them accurate information is, is a good thing as well. When possible, when you're in a a hospital setting where you can refer to social workers, lactation consultants, child life specialists, chaplains, that's such an asset to the collaborative care that we can offer that patient and family. And I often say we don't have to know how to meet all their needs, but we have to be able to assess and then refer them appropriately. As you can imagine, as I'm talking about all this, all of this takes time in an appointment. And so being able to build time into appointments to allow time for those questions and to build that trusting relationship is important. And I think lastly, just making sure that we give them clear, easy to understand information because we know that the mothers are going to have to go and explain to their their family and friends And that was actually one of the surprising aspects of my research. We know that with lethal diagnoses, 
disclosing that news is very stressful to family and friends. But what I found with my sample population in my study, they were all non-lethal diagnoses. However, they all talked about the distress of sharing that news with family and friends. And some of them would talk about how if they had a picture, they could share that picture. One mom told me, she said the picture that the pediatric cardiologist drew for her baby's heart, she kept it on the refrigerator and she could point to a picture of a normal heart and then to her baby's heart. And that helped her explain it. So sharing with them what's worked with other mothers may be helpful. For example, sharing pictures or sharing information. So that was a lot of tips, but really all from what mothers have shared with me on what is helpful to them during their pregnancy. Those are all amazing tips. So I do appreciate you sharing. What advice would you give to the clinician, healthcare provider, team member who is there when the initial concern for an anomaly presents itself, but haven't yet made that referral to maternal fetal medicine or high-risk pregnancy team? Because what I find a lot of times is there may be hesitancy to really delve into the talk about the anomaly, one, because we want that confirmation that what they're truly see- what they're seeing is truly there, but also maybe a concern about getting into a conversation area where they may feel not as comfortable with counseling and talking about next steps. What advice would you give to that initial team as they encountered this anomaly and are ready to present the patient with information? That's a great question because that obstetrical provider who is suddenly seeing on ultrasound something that they they didn't anticipate or they didn't see before, and especially hard when they're not sure. Maybe they're aware that there is a heart defect, but it's it's hard to see at this point. Uh, maybe gestational age, or so you know, patients really appreciate physicians and providers being honest and clear and saying. And a lot of times patients will say, well, they told me there was a concern or there was a question. So I think that is a a helpful way to phrase it, you know, that we're referring you to a specialist where you will have another ultrasound and it will be a lengthy ultrasound as they look very closely. They may have to call in a pediatric cardiologist, for example, if it's a, a heart defect and you should have more information after that. So I think being honest with this is what we see today, and and that goes back to that timely referral, you know, saying I'm going to call their office today, that office will be in touch with you so that they know they're, they're getting their answers quickly. I think one thing that was interesting to me when I would talk to moms about that time of waiting, like I remember one mom said, oh, it was such a long time. Well, she saw her OB provider on a Friday and she saw us on Monday, but her perception was that was an incredibly long weekend. So that really gave me insight into where I may be thinking I'm getting someone in very quickly, then it may not be as quick as, as it is perceived for that, that family. When I would contact the mom for her appointment after the, her provider referred her to us, I still had to be careful about you know, because I didn't, I didn't know what was going to be seen. I didn't know what had been seen in that primary provider's office. So, you know, there again is that period of uncertainty and waiting. But patients over and over have said, and it's in the literature, that they appreciate honesty, 
clarity as much as possible and that directness. And they appreciate and really value when a provider says, I'm not sure this is what we think, you know, because they feel like there's not any secrets, you know. But I I have found a wide range of what patients understand when they would walk into the fetal center. And I would know some of the providers that had referred them. And I knew that they would have said more than just, oh, something's wrong with the heart. But that always kind of also reinforced to me that when people are stressed and anxious, they don't hear everything. Very true. It's the selective hearing as you're processing. Right. Because it is really big information, to say the least. And I do um, often recommend that a patient bring someone that they trust and that they're close to, to their appointments, because as you said, you're processing, you hear a lot of information. I mean, I recommend that generally with family and friends, take somebody with you to the doctor because it's just, it's hard to hear everything. And sometimes that close family member or friend may think of a question that you hadn't thought of that would be helpful. That is very smart advice. And also that person may be able to hold on to more information to help with processing later, oftentimes at home when you're going through again the visit and trying to remember everything that's being told. You mentioned direct delivery of information. And I will say, I think across the board for all of us, it is a very difficult thing to do when it is very direct information that is not positive, that's not a happy moment, that can also mean we're headed towards or in a direction where bad things are to come, to say the least. Do you have any advice when delivering any sort of information that is very much so heavy information, but also needed to be direct? Because it's my understanding, as you've been explaining things, that patients would appreciate really a direct approach about what is going on in a factual manner, But sometimes it may need to be, in my opinion, need to be a little softened so that it's received. Well, and I think understanding that people process differently because the theoretical framework that I use for my study is a theory where the initial phase is that you've got to assume they're going to be shocked. Because when women go into their pregnancy, and especially as we know, they're excited about ultrasound, they're excited about seeing the baby. So they assume normal, they assume normal. So if we if we always think about there's going to be that universal shock. So and understanding the process that while we may have a lot of information to give them about an anomaly and anticipated surgeries and all, it may not be that first time to disclose that information to them may not be the the place. And and some patients are going to immediately, as you know, have a lot of questions, but some are really in that state of shock. And I have seen patients who they just want to get out of the conference room. They don't want to talk anymore. They don't want to hear anymore. And I think we have to respect that. And then there are others that want to take a minute. And one of the things that I've seen many of your colleagues do, and I'm sure you've done it as well, is is to give that news and then say, do you need a minute? I can step out for a minute and let y'all talk and come back in a few minutes. And I think that is such a wonderful way to give them a chance to process it alone 
because I know that when I'm in that conference room with the maternal fetal medicine physician and, and maybe there's another physician and maybe there's a fellow and the family, it's a lot. It's a lot for a family. So given that that minute to process and think about it and then and just honoring that, because sometimes patients will say, I think we just want to go and think about this. And being available for questions afterwards. There were some times at the fetal center that I would call a patient or family the next day and say, do you have anything that you, do you have any more questions? Is there anything I can answer for you? And of course, I couldn't always answer them as the nurse, but I would say, let me talk to your doctor and I will call you back about that. Because if we weren't going to see them for another three or four weeks, that's a long time to go. So letting them know that we're here, you can call us anytime with questions. And that was one thing in my interviews that I heard over and over that patients really valued when they could ask questions. They knew they could ask questions anytime and get those answers. This was a poignant comment from a patient that I remembered that the experience of that conference room because when she came back for another visit, she said, do I ever have to go in that conference room again? And I said, absolutely not. She was the only one that I remember that was so direct about it, but it's like, why would I want her to go back into that room if it's just bad memories for her? So I don't know if that was helpful because it's so individual. And as you know, Dr. Tate, some patients are going to immediately be firing a lot of questions at you, but some are just quiet and processing. That was very helpful. It definitely helps to make sure we're very thoughtful in our approach and thoughtful in our encounter, in the completion of it. I think that is great advice to have a moment for the patient to process alone and not just awkwardly stare while they're processing information, and then just to give them time on their own. For our providers who are strictly hospital-based, they oftentimes encounter patients with anomalies at the end of pregnancy when it's time to deliver. Is there anything in their realm? I know you mentioned referrals that may come into, into the play of things once the patient's admitted, such as social work. Are there any other recommendations for how they can interact and support patients with anomalies? Well, I think that, you know, if, if that's their first time meeting the patient, which, of course, we would see that a lot, too, with all the different specialists involved, you know, maybe their partner saw them on a prenatal consult, but this particular neonatologist had not met them before. I think, again, it goes back to what do you understand? What questions can I answer? And then following up, because you know, many times when our moms would be in labor or are either being admitted for a scheduled C-section, you know, the neonatologist would, would come down and meet them ahead of time. But then they would still get to see that neonatologist later in the day or the next day. So being able to follow up with, did you have any more questions for, for yesterday? And also, what do you want with this delivery? We all know that our uncomplicated deliveries and pregnancies, patients have a birth plan. So they're going to have a birth plan too, you know, especially when we have a baby with a lethal anomaly. What do you want? Do you, would you like to have the baby stay with you? You know, all those options. And of course, we have talked about those ahead of time, usually, but, and the patients have had time to think about what they want, but just going over with that again. And especially in those hard situations where 
the family is called to make a choice about what extraordinary measures they want to be done and what they don't want. So really honoring those. But of course, you know, in the hospital, you can, do you want the chaplain? Do you want infant baptism? You know, asking, asking those questions. And I think also communicating with the nurse, you know, that nurse may have already been there eight hours with that patient and she's going to know, yes, she has a good understanding of the diagnosis. It's realistic. She understands we don't know how long the baby will live or, or she understands that the baby will go to the, the pediatric hospital very quickly, those type of things. One of the things that, that women and families really appreciate when that baby is transferred is the communication where between the nursery and then the pediatric hospital, that quick phone call to say, we anticipate the baby will be leaving our hospital in about 30 minutes. The pediatric hospital will let you know as soon as they receive the baby, that communication. And one of the things, as you know, that we did over at Lebonner frequently is that we would offer a tour of the NICU or the CBICU. And I had one mom say, and I thought I would have never thought of this, but she said, as hard as it was to see the NICU, because it is emotional, they're seeing tiny babies on ventilators and IVs and so much technology surrounding them. But she said, once they told me she was being transferred, I could envision her going down the hall. I could envision her being in her room and it helped me to visualize. And I thought, oh, that's so reassuring to know how valuable that prenatal tour was. So they really appreciate that communication. Of course, now we can do FaceTime and many of the pediatric hospitals have the cameras in the rooms where they can log onto their phone and watch their baby. And then, you know, knowing who, who's here with you, that that and involving the family. So, you know, talking to the dad or the patient's mother. So are you going to go on over to the children's hospital as soon as you can? You know, just understanding what their plans are. And I, I think all of those questions make it very patient and family centered, where regardless of the diagnosis of the baby, this is their baby. And we want to be individualized to care and make it as patient-centered as possible. I'd imagine as well that any new team members just demonstrating knowledge of her care, of her situation, of the baby, as they come into the care team would also ease the patient's mind. You know, if it's, like you said, not her doctor, but the partner, maybe maternal fetal medicine isn't there because they are not needed in patient or maybe the partner of the maternal fetal medicine doctor, like you said, the neonatologist partner. And I would assume that that would help as well with the experience, knowing that everyone is aware of what's going on with her pregnancy and her baby. I'm glad you brought that up because I have had patients comment that that was so reassuring to have a provider walk in the door and say, you know, this is my first time to meet you, but I've been hearing about your baby for two weeks and I've read everything on the chart. And they just, it's like they breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, I don't have to go over everything again with this this new doctor. And also repeating who they are and what their role is. Because even though we have described all the different specialties, as you know, it's overwhelming. I'm the neonatologist. I will be in the delivery room and I will be supervising care of your baby the entire time they're in the NICU. I'm with the pediatric surgeon, surgery team. You know, you met my partner. That Just reiterating that to, to remind them. But 
And as you know, too, that weekly conference that was held where patients were discussed, that was also very reassuring to the patients to know that we've got 30 experts in the room and we're spending 30 minutes looking at your baby's ultrasounds and talking about your care and we are planning for your baby. I mean, that's that's an amazing amount of expertise that's planning for the baby. So again, being really clear and transparent that we're sending every ultrasound back to your primary doctor. We're sending every ultrasound to the surgeons so that they know exactly what's going on. That really gives them a lot of reassurance. As far as the postpartum period, as you mentioned, the infant, the neonate will be taken care of by pediatric teams. Is there a role in the obstetrical teams continuing in this anomaly circle of care after she's delivered? You know, that was one of the things that I absolutely enjoyed so much with the fetal center being housed in the pediatric hospital because to me, it bridged the obstetrical and the pediatric world in a way that I had never experienced. As you know, many times we have been in the midst of caring for a high-risk mom in the hospital setting before I was in the fetal center. And it would be, maybe you would have taken care of that mom for two days. It was a very high-risk situation and you did your very best. But unless you made a point to go up to the NICU or follow up with the neonatologist, you didn't always know the outcome. So I really enjoyed being able to visit the moms and the babies in the NICU and the CBICU. And one of the things I I told the patients after they graduated from coming to the fetal center, I would say, now, anytime you're in this building, you know, you have to stop by and show the baby off. And that was so rewarding personally to me to be able to see these babies just thriving. And I remember, you know, 17-year-old moms and they would bring that that two-month-old baby that was just so fat and chunky and was totally breastfed and was was thriving. And But one of the things that the pediatric hospital did that I don't know if it's standard everywhere, but I thought it was such a good practice that the obstetrical providers got a re- weekly report on how that baby was doing in the NICU. And then the pediatrician that would get a summary too. This baby has been in the NICU for two months. The discharge was today and they've got that whole history and physical. So again, it's that experience where the mom is bringing that discharged baby to the pediatrician for their first visit. Oh, I know all about the past two months, you know, that reassurance that there's been that communication. And I have found that really the The NICU team, you know, they've been very receptive to when I would call or ask a nurse for follow-up, ask a provider how that baby did. And it really, as you know, Dr. Tate, with being able to hear that outcome, it informs all of our care. And when when the, the pediatric specialists are able to meet the mom prenatally, again, that's bridging of that, that care. So, We don't have to operate in such silos, but I think we do have to, it takes intentional extra effort to follow up with that baby, to follow up with that mom. But things like reunions, you know, NICU reunions, I think we should involve the obstetrical providers when we have those NICU reunions. It's, you know, when you talked about how hard it is to give the news, whether it's that obstetrical provider or the maternal fetal medicine specialist. As you know, I've worked with many of our maternal fetal medicine specialists that have been in practice for 30, 40 years. 
I never saw that delivering that news got any easier. And on days where we would have maybe three patients in a row with really some hard news, I really, I could see that burden on them. So I don't think that gets easier. I don't think it's a task that you can just like be complacent about it. But I think that goes back to taking care of ourselves and knowing that we have done the very best that we can. Sometimes people, and they may have said this to you, I'm sure they probably have. When you tell them what you do, oh, that must be hard. That must be depressing. How can you do that? But, you know, my comment back about that was, yes, some days are very hard. However, at the same time, when you're delivering that news, I love this phrase, and this is not original. It was from some of our maternal fetal physicians. They would say, we are going to journey with you. You're not alone. This is the information we have. These are the resources. These are the people that we want you to meet. We're going to be with you throughout every step. Just conveying to them that they're not alone. To me, what would be horrible would be to deliver the news and then say, we wish you the best, you know. So, but we're offering to journey with them and to provide the resources that we have. It doesn't take away the grief and the pain and the loss, but hopefully that experience that we are there with them can help to ease some of that pain. Very well said. So articulate. I don't think I could put those words together any better. So I appreciate you sharing those sentiments with us. Uh, Lastly, my last question, I know that I feel like I've drained you of all of your expertise and I appreciate it. So shifting perspectives for the patient who receives the diagnosis of a congenital anomaly and for family alike, what advice would you give to that patient so that they are well understood of what's going on with the baby, as well as making sure they're heard through this journey? Don't hesitate to ask questions. Write them down and tell your provider, I have some questions before we leave today. And just saying, I want to ask these questions. Do we have time in the appointment today? Even letting the nurse know when you check in, well, I have a whole list of questions for for the doctor today. And I would go and tell the provider, she's got a list of questions for you. So let's make sure we've got time to, to answer them. And writing them down is very helpful so that we don't forget them. Again, as we mentioned, bringing someone with you to your appointments. Another thing I recommend is to start a notebook that you can keep all your information, all your appointments in. And that is also one that you can carry into the NICU because when, when our babies are in the NICU, a lot of times the moms are there so much of the time, but when they have other children at home, they're not able to be there 24-7. So maybe the dad's there or the grandmother's there. And so when you have that notebook and you can write down, you know, the pediatric surgeon came in at 8 a.m. and this is what he said, and that communicates to the family. I thought this was a really good idea. Some women will designate a friend or a family member as the one to give updates daily via an email or a text message once the baby's in the NICU. And that really can cut down on the phone calls that the mom and dads are having to deal with. I had one mom say, I'm trying to listen to all the providers when they come in. I'm trying to focus on my baby. I don't have time to answer all these texts and emails. And I know people care and I appreciate it. So I thought that was really smart to have one person that can send out that information on a daily basis. And then discuss with your family 
who do you want to disclose and share information with? And not that we're conveying that there's any type of stigma. I don't mean that at all. But that the bigger your circle is that you're sharing every visit with and every ultrasound and every test, that's more people that that mom is having to talk with. And it's a lot of energy. So I would have moms tell me, and again, I thought this was very smart. They would say they had their close group, like maybe their sister or their best friend and or their mom, that they knew everything about all the visits, everything going on with mom and baby. And then they had their little bit bigger group that they shared some, but not everything. And some of them would say, you know, I do value prayer. I want my church praying for me, but I don't have to tell them every single visit. So I thought that was a good way that families could kind of strategize prenatally. Okay, how do we want to handle getting all this information out? Because as you know, when you're having multiple phone calls and it's the same phone, same information being shared, it's exhausting for that mom and dad. So these are, I mean, these are all things that, that mothers have shared with me that have been helpful to them. So I think as clinicians, when we can give that anticipatory guidance, that's very helpful. And if you think about it in the way that think about all of our moms, that it's their first pregnancy, we give them anticipatory guidance. We give every visit is full of education. So it's the same with our high risk patients that yes, it's all the usual pregnancy information, but this is a tip that may help when your baby's in the NICU, those type of things. Such great advice once again. Dr. Tucker, I cannot thank you enough for joining us for today's podcast and sharing your expertise. I am personally very happy that we have you to ourselves in the state of Tennessee and that we can continue to tap into your expertise to provide great care for the mothers and the babies across the state. Again, I appreciate your time. In the show notes, we'll make sure to put in any contact information that you're willing to share with us so that if anyone has any questions or needs advice or help setting things up, they can come to the state expert, Dr. Janet Tucker. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm happy to communicate with anyone about what our patients have taught us. And I'm very happy to be on a podcast with TIPQC because I've been aware of the great work in the state for, for many years. Thank you again, Dr. Tucker, and thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.